0: you Good morning living water and welcome to those who are online appreciate you tuning in today we're glad that you made the choice to be a part of our worship service via the internet you turn me down a little bit all right thanks so much I appreciate that in the back uh, if you have your Bibles I'm gonna ask you to go ahead and uh, open up to Romans chapter 11 you can find it on your phone if you want to do that on your iPad whatever tablet you want to use at home we'd ask you to do the same thing to uh, open your Bibles as well so you can see the text for yourself Whether that's an electronic text or a written page, black and white text, I'll find it here in my Bible. Once you have that, if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's Word. Of course, I'm reading from the ESV just in case you have a preferred translation that's different. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 24, verses 11 through 24. I'll pick up at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full here inclusion mean? Or fullness. Uh, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance but life from? Uh, excuse, me, sorry, excuse me, yeah. But uh, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the whole root and if the root is holy, so are all, so are the branches. For if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even, and even they, if they do not continue, in, and their unbelief will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature in what is a cultivated olive, cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for another opportunity to get up here and to talk about what your word says. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and his life that lived so many thousand years ago, and we thank you that he's in your presence. Awaiting the day of resurrection and we do pray and uh, thank you that your word has been uh, transmitted faithfully to us so that we could understand it And Lord, we thank you for the many English translations that you have uh, Allowed to happen so that we can read the Bible in our own language uh, We're so grateful for that tremendous blessing to have the scriptures in a language that we can understand uh, We pray that for Bible translation around the world that that those who do not have the Bible in their language that that effort continues to move forward We thank you for this opportunity to think about what your word says and how it might challenge us in our own lives. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit in your mercy, that he would engage with each one of us who are here today. Those who are uh, listening through uh, means of technology and those who are in this room and for all those who will listen at some point later in the future. uh, We pray that you would engage hearts then and now. Uh, Lord, and we do pray that you would receive the glory and the honor. I pray that you would guide me in what I say, and I pray, Lord, that you would help me to share the things that I've studied and uh, to present those clearly to your people who are here. Uh, you're the one who does the convicting. I just stand here. And if there's anything, Father, that I have left unconfessed, that I have not brought to you, that was stand in the way of me being used by you, uh, would you pardon that now and cleanse me? And then, Lord, for my hearers who are in this room and at their homes or various places, maybe even driving right now, listening to the message as they make their way back to Harrisburg. Lord, I, I, I pray that you would uh, give them spiritual sight, open their ears that they might be able to hear, give them hearts that are receptive and not hardened. We ask these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So in 2014, Christianity Today published an article that I I want to share with you uh, that uh, recounts a, a very disheartening event in church life. The article starts off by saying that after nearly 20 years as lead pastor of Seattle's Mars Hills Church, Mark Driscoll has resigned. Driscoll was facing mounting criticism over the church leadership and discipline within Mars Hill and how he wrote and published and promoted some of his popular books. The decision came two months after Driscoll had stepped down from leadership while the church investigated charges against him. Early in August of 2014, he had been removed from the church planning networks, which he had helped to initiate Acts 29. Uh, In a statement, the church's board of overseers accepted his resignation, but emphasized that they had not asked for his resignation and was surprised to receive his letter. They had concluded that Mark Driscoll was uh, guilty of, and quote, being guilty of arrogance, responding to conflict with a quick temper and harsh speech, and leading the staff and elders in a domineering way. But as they went on to say that he had never been charged with what we might classify as some form of immorality, illegality, or heresy. Most of the charges had to do with attitudes and behaviors reflected in his quote-unquote domineering style of leadership. In his his resignation letter, he wrote, this was included as part of his own words, and he said this himself. He said, I readily acknowledge I am an imperfect messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many things I have confessed and repented of privately and publicly, as you are well aware. Specifically, I have confessed to past pride, anger, and a domineering spirit. And that is why after seeking the face and will of God and seeking only and seeking godly counsel from men and women across the country, we have concluded it would be best for the health of our family and for the Mars Hill family that we step aside from further ministry at the church we helped to launch in 1996. Now, some of you are probably far more familiar with this story than I am. As you have taken time to listen to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And perhaps at some time in the future, I will listen to that podcast in depth. But you find out as you continue to read that Mark Mark Driscoll is not the only one of his kind. In another uh, Christianity Today article, a a similar thing happened with another Christian leader three years before in 2011. Quote, Sovereign Grace Ministries President C.J. Mahaney stepped down due to various expressions of pride, unentreatability, deceit, sinful judgment, and hypocrisy. The focus, what I want to focus on today is the pride concept because that's where the text takes us to today. One of the things that these illustrations show us from real-world examples is that pride has the ability to ruin relationships. Like a snake that slips in silently before delivering its deadly strike so feelings of superiority can slither their way into our hearts and poison us with its venom. Thoughts and feelings of arrogance can arise from all kinds of circumstances. We can go to work and begin to notice that others do not have the same work ethic that we do. And we began to then evaluate and rank ourselves in comparison to others. And those who we deem to have an inferior work ethic, we look down upon, and pride begins to grow in our hearts. We could be having a casual conversation with others who are having marital issues, and we began to, in aid to help them, or just be a listening ear, began to hear about how they're having these struggles, and they're having making decisions in their marriage, and we began to think about our own marriage, and that we've not made those kinds of decisions, and our marriage is in a better state than their marriage, and solely the seed of pride takes root in our hearts, and we began to deem It might be that we're just better people. And that's why they're having all those struggles, because they can't seem to make good decisions in their marriages. What about those fun conversations that we have about our kids and what they've done in life? How sometimes it's easy to talk about when your kid has become a doctor or a lawyer or has gone to a prestigious university and graduated and succeeded in life. But it's so hard when you're some way listening to that and you're having to ask, well, what do your kids do? And you have to talk about the struggles and how they can't seem to find their way in life. And it's, it's easy to, as a parent, begin to deem, well, I've just been a good parent. Perhaps they didn't make the right decisions in their parenting. And the other parent, while struggling, trying to not reflect on what has happened and began to take on personally the decisions that their child is making as a full-grown adult and, and struggling with feelings, feelings of failure. But you as the good parent, because your child has done so well, it's easy to slip into pride. Sometimes it's just that you've had a better childhood, more knowledge, more education, more money, all can be sources that easily become fertile ground for viewing yourself or viewing myself as superior to others. It can slip in when you're sitting down listening to someone else read, and you begin to notice that they stumble over words, don't pronounce words uh, as well or correctly, and you begin to to wonder what has happened in their education. Because you read better than they read, and you've had a, a larger vocabulary you began to deem that there's something wrong with them, and perhaps you're a little bit better. Or perhaps you've had a chance to read someone else's writings, you began to notice the grammatical errors. You notice the word choices, and the limited word choice, and you began to, to look at that and think about how it doesn't measure up to your standard. And somewhere in the midst of all that, pride takes hold of your heart. And though it starts off as a small seed, it eventually begins to grow. You know, surprisingly, as we look at the text, salvation can even be an issue of pride. I'm saved. I'm with God. God's on my side, but He's not on your side. In some kind of way, that can make me feel a sense of elitism. I'm in a higher, better class than you. See, pride is whenever we have an inflated view of ourselves. I think my daughter summed it up well when she said this. Pride can be easy to fall into but hard to get out of, especially when you don't see your own pride. And yes, believers in the first century weren't exempt from pride either. And Paul knew this. So he hammered on Gentile Jewish pride and he hammers on Gentile pride. Because Paul knew that if pride is not properly addressed, it will hurt relationships in the church between believers. That was true then, and it's still true now, because pride prevents us from loving others. We've already covered Paul's attack on Jewish pride in Romans chapters 2 and 3. Today, Paul is going to bring the hammer on Gentile pride. Just by way of review, as you know, in Romans 9 and 10, Paul has used numerous Bible quotations to explain the minimal response from the Jews, from those who are his people, to the gospel message that he and others are proclaiming. And as he has alluded to, he views their rejection of the gospel message as a sign of divine judgment, spiritual hardening, because of their rejecting Jesus during his ministry. For him, of course, this did not negate uh, the, the fact that there needed to be gospel proclamation as well for him. A big theme is Gentile inclusion uh, into this Jewish salvation that he has been highlighting through these chapters. As we've read, if you go back and look at the text, what you'll notice is in this part of the, these chapters, Paul never positions the Gentiles in a negative light there. Are, as we could borrow the language from Romans 9, there are objects of God's mercy along with he includes some Jews. Now, this type of writing presents a cultural problem for his hearers. Because if you go back and you study historically, you'll find out that the same issues that we struggle with today existed back then. Due to cultural differences of how Jews lived in society, Gentiles despised Jews. And what Paul realized is that that pre-conversion attitude could come into a post-conversion church. And that you could bring the same attitudes and views that you held outside as an unbeliever right into the church with you, even though you have faith in Christ. And so Paul wants to deal with that issue because he knows that if believers are not watchful, that attitude will cause the church to struggle. And so in light of things that Paul has stated and alluded to in Romans 9 and 10, he knows that Gentiles could quickly come to the conclusion that God had rejected Israel and now replaced Israel with Gentiles as his focus. However, that's the very thought that he argues against in chapter 11, saying this is an erroneous conclusion from what I've already said about what God is doing in salvation. And he addresses that by raising two questions. Two questions. We heard the first question last week in Pastor Mike's sermons. Let me restate it for you. Has God rejected his people? And by people he means Israel specifically. Paul's answer was emphatic, no. The evidence he offers, it says, listen, look at me. I'm one of them, and I'm not alone. There are others like me. He refers to them as the remnant or the elect. He then goes on to state plainly what he had only motioned toward with with biblical quotations. God was hardening the majority of Israel. He then went on to quote uh, from the Old Testament for give himself support and to give a definition to what he had in concept by meaning of what was the idea of divine hardening. That brings us to his second question in chapter 11 that he's going to answer with three arguments. This week, we're going to look at two of those arguments. We'll cover the final one next week. But in talking about these, I believe there's something in here that helps us to th- concepts of how to deal with pride in our own lives. So let me get to the first point uh, to draw out of his first argument. And it's simply this, that we need a right view of ourselves to overcome pride. We need a right view of ourselves to overcome pride. Now, Paul helps us to see this point by pointing out that God's salvation is bigger than just us. God's salvation is bigger than just us. Let's revisit the text, verses 11 through 15. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now you probably noticed a few things right away. Paul starts off with a question in verse 11. Let me restate it and put it in a in different language. He writes. Or he may ask, uh, is this spiritual condition of hardening that I've been talking about that's going on with what I believe is happening with the majority of my people, is this a permanent condition for Israel? Again, he replies with an emphatic, no, it's a temporary situation. Paul then gives the reason to us by describing the big picture uh, that God has in mind concerning his plan of salvation as it relates to both Jews and Gentiles. Now, I want to borrow here an observation from Dr. Mu, and and it's one that others have noticed, but I I want to to borrow his uh, because I think he brings it out in a better way. Not in a quote, but just telling you exactly what he says here. and, And it's an observation that appears several times in the text. If you were to read the verses, you'll notice them if you're looking at the text. It happens the pattern shows up in verses 11 and 12, verse 15, verses 17 through 23, verses 25 and 26, and verses thirty through thirty-one. Now the words are not exactly the same, but it's the same concept that Paul is getting at here. So here's the idea, and uh, and it has to do with this. And I'll show you. There's a picture that I'll put that Michael put up on the board for me here, or on the screens behind me. Israel's rejection of Jesus opened the door for the gospel message to be spread to the Gentiles. This brought God's salvation to the Gentiles. Those who believed and are. We'll, and are, or right now, and will be saved in the future, thinking about Paul's thought of eschatological or end times salvation there, there. In turn, God is then using Gentile salvation to provoke Israel to jealousy. Paul alludes to this idea early in Romans chapter 10, verse 19, when he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. And as a result, Paul has here in a vision that God will bring salvation then through Gentile salvation to Israel. So salvation will return again to Israel. Paul points out the benefits of this for Gentiles when Israel has an acceptance of Jesus Christ, when he uses a comparison at the end of verse 15. He says, listen, if when the Jews rejected Jesus, if that brought reconciliation to the nations or to the world, as he puts it here, and that was a blessing for us, if their rejection brought blessing, then what will their acceptance be? Here, most likely what he's referring to is resurrection resurrection from the dead, that concept that he brought up in Romans chapter 8, this idea of the end of the age being brought on by if there's a, a majority, a national acceptance of Jesus, not necessarily every person, but a in large number, them turning to faith in Jesus Christ. Let me let me give you a present world example that's less than a perfect illustration. Every illustration breaks down at some point. But let me use one to try to see if I can get the message across of this pattern in a way that might be more reasonable for us to grasp today. So several years ago, I was here at service, just like we were in service right now, and after the 11 a.m. service, most people had left, and I was heading out towards the office to get my things and make my way home for the day to take care of whatever it is that I had planned. One of the brothers who attended our church at that time stopped me in the lobby and said, Hey, brother, I want to uh, ask you if you'd be willing to accept uh, four tickets. I know you got four people in your family, four tickets to a Hershey Bears game. Uh, that's happened but it's happening tonight. So if, if you're gonna accept the tickets, you got to go to the game tonight. I'm not a hockey fan. So I was like, all right. Uh, well, and he said, well, well, let me tell you what's going on. So these uh, tickets were originally intended for my employees at my company. But I went to all my employees and they all rejected the offer because they had other things to do. And so I want to make sure these tickets are used, and so now I'm bringing them to you, who's not an employee of the company, and if you take them. I said, well, in light of that, brother, I understand. You know what? I mean, how bad could a hockey game really be? <laughs> I don't watch hockey. I'm not from a place that likes hockey. No, well, really, I mean, it's a night out. Something different. New exposure, at least, you know, hey, you're learning experience. So we get to the hockey game. I show up, and we get to the hockey game. As we're walking in the door, they say, hey, look, tonight's a special night. You showed up at the right night. We're giving out Hershey Park tickets. How many people you got in your family? I'm like, four. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this night has turned around real fast. (laughs) So we get four four free tickets to Hershey Park. Blessing. We go sit down. We're sitting down, and we're just sitting there, right? I'm just trying to get acclimated to the environment and what's going on, and seeing all the people in the Hershey Bears gear and all that, you know, trying to sort all that out in my mind, and sitting down with the kids. They're trying to figure out what's going on. I'm like, I don't know anything about this game. (laughs) The couple sitting in front of us turns around. They're like, oh, you got kids with you tonight? And they reach in their bag, and I don't know, they had a brand new hockey puck, official one, handed to us, like, here to remember the night. I'm like, what in the world (laughs) is going on up in here? You know, one of the people come to Hershey Bears, it's like a community up in here, like love and acceptance and, you know, all this stuff. I want to come back again. And then on top of that, the Hershey Bears won the game. I mean, it was like blessing after blessing after blessing. I'm like, what in the world? Hockey. Yes. Amen. Go Hershey Bears. We go home. Wonderful experience wonderful experience right now to bring Paul's point all the way home what I would have had to do was to go to his job and began to testify about the great night that I had had at the Hershey Bears game so as to hopefully provoke the employees who the tickets were meant for to jealousy so that the next time that the offer was given to them they would be like I need to get to the game too and that's Paul's concept here Is that what was meant for others was given to us because they had rejected it, so we were accepted in, in its place. Well, as we see in verses 13 and 14, because that image is playing in Paul's mind, it motivates him in his ministry to the Gentiles. He says, this is what God is doing on a big scale, and so I'm going to, on a small scale, work in the same direction that God is going and that's what gives me passion in my ministry, to reach Gentiles, to want to go to Spain, to want to proclaim the gospel in places that it has never been proclaimed before. Not only to see uh, lives saved from the Gentiles, but hopefully in the process of seeing Gentiles saved and to enjoy the blessings that were promised to Israel, they'll see others who it wasn't promised to enjoying what belonged to them, and they'll say, I want some of that. And hopefully by means of that, they'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how does this relate to pride? As I mentioned earlier, when we feel like God is only for us on our side, we can easily look down on others as inferior. Now, in Paul's day, this meant that Gentile believers could see Jewish believers and Jewish unbelievers as inferior because they were already predisposed in that direction culturally. But one of the things that we notice from history is that once we start to view people as inferior, it's not long that we start to treat them as inferior afterwards. Sadly, this attitude that Paul warns against in Romans chapter 11 was adopted by various church leaders and church members towards Jews and Messianic Jews over the last 1,700 years in various places in Europe and their broader abouts. And it led to all kinds of atrocities, forced baptisms, loss of property, loss of possessions, loss of children, loss of marriages, and even on occasion, some murder. But Paul reminds us here that God's salvation is not just about us. And although God has saved us, God has something bigger in mind that has others in view as well. And it's that thought that'll help keep us humble as we approach others. Yes, you've been saved, but it's not just about you. See, having a right view of ourselves helps us to overcome pride. This brings us to the second thing in the text that Paul is going to argue. So we need a right view of ourselves. But not only do we need a right view of ourselves, we need a right view of God to overcome pride a right view of God to overcome pride. Paul opens our eyes to this by making us aware of the fact that God through salvation has placed Gentile believers into a dependent position, and he reminds us of God's character. We'll see this in verses 16 through 24. Let's revisit the text again just to bring it afresh to mind. So if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So as I just raised in verse 13, Paul now has shifted to talking directly to the Gentiles in chapter 11. So he's been talking to the Jews, talking to his general audience, but now he has zeroed in and he's saying, look, I'm talking to Gentiles now. Not talking to Jews. I'm talking to Gentiles. So you're looking for application. Here it is. Right for you and me. Here it is that Paul gets to. Now, Paul is going to draw upon a similar style of writing that he had already done in chapter 2 when he dealt with Jewish pride. Remember, he sat down at the table with the Jew. That's kind of how we pictured it. And he's kind of having this one-on-one conversation, same kind of idea here, right? Uh, And so we might imagine Paul using a modern-day idea. He is at Panera Bread, got a cup of coffee or tea or hot chocolate, whichever one you prefer as, as your drink. And he's sitting down with a, a Gentile friend, a believer who's across the table, and they're talking about this whole topic of salvation. And he starts off the conversation by quoting from or alluding to uh, Numbers chapter 15, verse 20 through 21, about the, the dough and the lump. And then he he transitions very quickly to another working illustration that becomes his dominant illustration for the for the rest of the passage. So we'll put our attention on that one. And it's this idea of an olive tree that shows up in both Jeremiah and in Hosea. Now, Dr. Ben Withington explains the significance of wh- why he does this, and, and this is the significance. He says, Jeremiah eleven sixteen and Hosea fourteen six use the olive tree metaphor. In both texts, uh, the focus is on God's judgment about broken branches, and in Hosea about restoration to a beautiful condition beyond judgment. So, it is Israel's broken condition that calls for use of the metaphor of olive tree. Now, Paul is going to use this olive tree to stem Gentile arrogance. Paul reminds his friends sitting across the table that, hey, you as a Gentile have been incorporated into a Israelite heritage. He says, look, there's roots and there's branches. Now, roots here most likely has in mind, there's different thoughts about it, but most likely he's pointing to, as he's alluded to earlier, talked about earlier in the letter, is most likely the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Probably special focus on Abraham, so that's been like his big guy that he's been talking about. And not just specifically them, but it's them because the promises of God came to those three people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what he's reminding his Gentile friend is, is look, you were not born into the people of God. You weren't, you weren't part of that. You weren't part of that heritage. But but you've been put into a family that was not yours right away. You've been added into promises that were not made to you or to your descendants. That was made to Abraham and to his descendants. Here he pictures the branches in two kinds, the natural branches, those that belong to the tree of Abraham, the Jews. And then us who are Gentiles, we're we're the wild olive branches. We're from other trees that have been added into Abraham's family. Now, interesting thing note here uh, about wild olive trees Dr. Willington says this, wild olive trees never produce useful oil. And the point that he's getting at here is this. He's reminding his Gentile friend by way of illustration and using that concept that you didn't bring anything spiritually speaking to the table. That the reason you and I were added in is by the sheer grace of God. So Gentile believers then and now, we've been grafted in to Abraham's family. Remember the argument of chapter 4. We're dependent on promises made not to us, but to them. It was to Abraham and his descendants. As I said before, we're not born into the people of God, and thus, in salvation, we enjoy benefits of what was promised to others, and we enjoy it through the seed of Abraham, which is Christ Jesus. Paul has already mentioned this idea in other letters, Ephesians chapter 2. You were far away. You were outside the covenant. You did not have the promises, right? But you were brought near through the blood of Christ. As Paul said in chapters 3 and 9 that Israel was blessed in many ways. One of those blessings you'll notice in there is the patriarchs. He says that belonged to them. If I were to borrow an illustration, thinking about our women's ministry going on the trip later this year, it's as if Jesus allows us to ride on Israel's bus to salvation. But Paul's Gentile friend wants to reason. He has an argument in response, a rebuttal to what Paul is saying. He said, yeah, Paul, hold on, brother. Hold on now, Paul. Don't get too fast. Slow down. But they were broken off so I could be put in. They were taken out. And I was put in. Paul doesn't disagree with this. He says, yeah, that's true. That's right. That's exactly what happened. But the the reason for why it was done is probably not the reason that you're thinking. Paul says, listen, yep, they were taken out and you were put into God's people. But he says, well, you got to remember a couple of other things. One, not all Jews were taken out, only certain ones. And why were they taken out? He gives us a causal statement in the text. He says it was because of their unbelief. Here he returns to an idea that he had already raised in chapter 2. He summarized the idea at the end of chapter 2 by saying this, for God shows no partiality. And the issue for Paul that's been been raised time and time again throughout throughout the letter of Romans, the major issue for him has been faith in Jesus Christ. So he says to his Gentile friends, yes, they were removed because of their unbelief, and you remain in the people of God because of faith in Jesus Christ. Christ. And then he goes on to make some shocking statements in light of the fact of what we just read at the end of Romans 8. He tells his Gentile friends that if he leaves the faith in Jesus Christ and adopts a position of unbelief like his Jewish uh, counterparts out in the world, he says to him, if you adopt that position, God will remove you too. What is Paul getting at here? That saving faith is a persisting faith. Saving faith is a persisting faith. Notice in the text what he says we must continue in God's kindness. That's a conditional statement. Now, the Gospel Coalition recounts a warning that uh, recounts a real life example of what this could look like uh, in uh, Paul's warning here when they recount the idea and life of Charles Templeton. Now, some of you are familiar with him, but Charles Templeton lived from 1915 to 2001. Uh, He first professed faith in 1936 and became an evangelist that same year. Many actually thought that he was going to be the world's greatest evangelist. In 1945, he met another great evangelist, Billy Graham, and the two of them became friends, rooming and ministering together in the 1946 YFC evangelistic tour in Europe. But by 1948, Templeton's life and worldview were beginning to go in a different direction than Graham's. Doubts about the Christian faith were solidifying as he planned to attend Princeton Theological Seminary. Less than a decade later, in 1957, he would publicly declare that he had become agnostic. In 19, his 1996 memoir, it was entitled, Farewell, Farewell to God My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. More recently, before he died, Lee Strobel had a chance to interview him, and in his interview, With tears in his eyes, as he raised this issue about him leaving the faith, he said to Lee Strobel, I miss Jesus. I miss him. But Whatever that missing was wouldn't bring him back to faith in Jesus. Charles Templeton is not the only one of his kind. You've probably been keeping up in, in news recently and noticed that there have been others who have been big names in Christianity that have denounced their faith in Christ. One as recent as this year, uh, a Christian, well-known Christian rapper, part of a group that I used to listen to called the Cross Movement, the fanatic. uh, He recently published a video to talk about how he is denouncing the faith after having gotten degrees both from Bible college and seminary and having master's degree and having studied the text. Now, in his video, he said this. He says, I am denouncing the Christian faith that I believe, professed, and claimed and defended for the last 30 years of my life. 30 years, you know, traveling the world, preaching to others, preaching to others what I wholeheartedly believe. He says now, but I I, I no longer hold that to be true. And I have given up on Jesus. And this is why we find scriptures like Hebrews that say things like this. Take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. I say again that saving faith is a persisting faith. Paul goes on to turn the metaphor and says, look, if they leave a state of unbelief, If the Jew turns from a state of unbelief to faith in Christ, God has the power to graft them in again. And in a sense to which he says they naturally belong. Think about it. They were born into the people of God. They naturally belong among the people of God. Realizing that God is impartial reminds us that the blessing of salvation we enjoy is solely by God's grace through faith. And this should demolish any reasons that may cause us to have a sense of pride. It's not our financial status, not our abilities, not how our children fare in life, not our education, not our monetary status, not even our appearance, no matter how, how much we work out at the gym. We are saved solely by the grace of God. Paul says instead of adopting an attitude of pride, there is an attitude he wants us to adopt in the text. Notice what he says. He says, don't be proud, but fear. Fear who? Fear God. We need to have a reverential respect for God. And when we see God rightly, it helps us to overcome pride. Well, what may be some signs that pride has taken root up in our hearts? Well, I came across this nice little article, which I want to share with you by Kevin Thompson, and he's, he's, he's writing to those who are in, in marriage and struggles in marriage, and he's talking about signs that there might be pride in the marriage in one of the partners, or maybe both of the partners. But I think that what he says here when he gives these 10 things could be true of any relationship. And I would say, search your own heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and bring conviction in your heart. If this might be true, the pride might be pres- present in you or me. I was convicted, and there are things that the Lord I'm asking the Lord to remove from me and work out in my own life. Maybe there are things in your heart. One of the things he says about pride is this. He says, when pride is present in a relationship, everything is personal. Pride is an elevated view of self, which we said earlier, and when pride enters an individual, everything becomes about them. So every opposing idea or differing differing viewpoint isn't seen as a natural disagreement or a difference of perspective. It is a personal attack against them. And their response to every situation is one of defensiveness because they feel assaulted, even if you simply disagree over the most minor of issues. Pride. Pride also shows up sometimes in relationships and fault finding. Because pride requires us to look better than others, a pride-filled person becomes an expert at finding fault in others. It could be bosses, co-workers, friends, political leaders, referees, coaches, and even your own spouse. You know, when you put on those fault-finding glasses, it's hard to take them off once you see in life with fault-finding glasses. Everything looks like a problem. Sometimes pride shows up in a refusal to be influenced by others. See, humility opens one up to change while pride paralyzes us in our current state. It shows that respect has been lost. And when we think ourselves better than others, we stop being willing to be influenced by them. Sometimes pride shows up in the form of uh, ignorance of the need of others. Pride doesn't just keep us from caring for others. It prevents us from seeing their need. It causes us to be focused so much on self that we no longer see the hurts, struggles, and inabilities of others. Pride sometimes shows up in the form of addiction to attention. Pride demands attention, believing ourselves to be more important than others, though we might never say that to others. We just assume that everything should be about us. And so we start to focus on what we want, what we think, what we desire, and how everything impacts us. Sometimes pride shows up in a refusal to submit to authority. Generally, pride shows up in saying, look, I've got everything figured out. Don't need to listen to experts. I I don't care if you got statistics on your side or not. Even if what I'm doing seems to be wrong from a statistical perspective, Because I am the exception to the rule. Shows up when like people go to marriage counseling and a person that has arrogance in their heart, they show up there and a counselor may be sharing legitimate facts about reality and human behavior that these paths are not good, but the person with pride, they don't want to listen. The only reason that they're at the marriage thing is so the counselor can validate their perspective about their spouse. I just need you to tell me I'm right. Pride sometimes shows up in the inability to, to, a seat, to see opposing viewpoints because pride says, crown our way of thinking as king. And it's hard to see anyone who sees things differently as other than wrong. I can't, I can't fathom how a person could vote differently than me. Can't fathom how a person could have a different opinion than me because I'm right. Pride shows up sometimes in never asking for help, but always expecting service. It. It's an odd combination, he says, but pride wears the two together. When we overvalue ourselves, we refuse to ask others for help. We see it as a weakness. But at the same time, we regularly expect others to serve us because we think we are due their sacrifice. So in a marriage relationship, a man will not necessarily ask his wife for everything, but expect her to do everything. Sometimes pride shows up in an absence to be willing to sacrifice and submit to others. Pride says we deserve to do our own thing, go our own way. So in a marriage relationship, it shows up in a sense of, you know what? Marriage demands that I sacrifice. Sometimes my individual dreams and desires for the good of the marriage. It requires us to submit our wills to one another for the union to flourish. But pride says, nope, you don't have to do that. No, that's not necessary they just need to get on board with you finally pride makes it hard for people to apologize and to say i'm sorry pride sometimes shows up in their inability to apologize and that could be for one or two reasons first as i said before sometimes you're blinded by sin you can't even see that you're prideful and as a result of that you can't apologize because you don't think you're wrong or sometimes Pride won't let you say you're wrong. You know you're wrong. You know you ought to admit that you're wrong. You know you need to apologize and repent and change your behavior. But pride says to you, don't do it. Don't you do that. And so you'll never, ever utter the words, I'm wrong. What I've done to you is wrong. But what do the scriptures tell us? Listen to what Paul writes. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in, the, in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have the answer. It's been given to you, the mind of Christ. And his mind is a mind that leads us to a path of humility. Christ is the way out. If you're struggling with pride today, there's a word of hope for you in the scriptures Listen to what it says. If you confess your sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may be struggling with pride, but you don't have to stay there. God is willing and able to help. In closing, so for my class, I had a chance to write a paper on someone, a Jewish person who got a chance to come to faith, and I got to choose between 19 centuries of history and ended up landing in the 18th century, oh, 19th century and uh, 1800s on a Jewish man by the name of Dr. Uh, Alfred Edersheim uh, to look at how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And what was fascinating to me is these two things that I mentioned earlier came to play in him coming to faith. One, having a right view of himself, and two, having a right view of God. Right view of himself. So Scottish missionaries had come into where he was living at the time, which was Austria and Hungary. Uh, he had moved from Vienna to Budapest at the time, which was just Pesta at the time, because they were two separate cities from what I understand at that point in history. And while he was living there under Jewish tutor, Scottish missionaries had come from Scotland, and he got into a relationship with them through some providential circumstances. And through encountering them by being in relationship with these men who were seeking to live godly lives, it helped to change his view about himself. This is what he said in his own words. The purity and holiness of these men attracted me. Their earnestness and their firmness of their convictions drove me to investigate their faith, which made them better than myself or any people I ever knew. He saw himself differently in light of those who were committed to God in a way that he did not understand, and that caused him to desire to know more about this faith in Jesus and what it had done to these Gentiles and caused jealousy in him, in a sense. One of the missionaries, as he leaned into trying to find out more about their faith, gifted him with a New Testament. And as he was gifted with the New Testament, as a scholar, he began to read the New Testament, and there he encountered a right view about God and Jesus. And this is what he said. From Wingate, I received a New Testament. I shall never forget the impression Jesus' Sermon on the Mount had on me, nor the surprise and the profound feeling I experienced while reading the New Testament. The Christianity which I knew as such hitherto was not Christianity. What I did not know was the teaching of Jesus, which which opened me up to such unfathomable depths. He later went on to profess faith in Christ and to be baptized and added to the Hungarian Reformed Church. He then went on to share the gospel. And because he uh, had a gifting with languages and he knew several and could speak several languages fluently, And because the Jews at that point were trying to assimilate into the culture, and one of the ways they wanted to do that was by learning the English language, he began to teach the English language to them. But because he had come to faith in Jesus Christ, what he decided to do was switch his textbook, of course, with the consent of his students, and says, hey, I want to use the Bible solely as my textbook to teach you English. And in that process, while he did that, over 100 other Jews came to faith in Jesus Christ. He went on to become a scholar and write numerous books and share the faith going out on the missionary field and pastoring others and leading them to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because when he got a right view of himself and he got a right view of God, it broke his human pride by the Spirit's work in his heart. He came to faith and led others to faith, and his faith became a productive faith. Brothers and sisters, when we have a right view of ourselves and a right view of God, it will help us deal with pride in our lives as well so that our faith might be productive as well. So we're about to have our offering but before we go to our offering before we pray today i just want to remind you about something that our church is doing because in the offering we're going to play a short video for you uh, Kathleen mentioned it in her, in her prayer that we have partnered with samaritan's purse and we are uh, by god's grace as some of you are involved with in our church helping a, a family from afghanistan who are refugees to assimilate into the culture here, and so we're partnering with that. So we want to show you a short video about what the church has been doing. Let me pray for the offering, and then we'll, as we collect the offering, you can watch the video. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we do pray, Lord, because pride is an issue that can so easily slip into our hearts. And it can start off so small, Lord. And before long, we're looking down on others for various reasons in life. And we pray for mercy, Lord, as we search our hearts and we ask you to search our hearts. And if you bring up the issue that pride is taking root, arrogance towards whoever that might be. I know in Paul's day, it was here, Paul was warning Gentiles against Jews. And maybe that's not the issue we're struggling with, but it's someone else. Maybe even people in our own family, maybe even as husbands and wives, we look down on our spouse and see them as inferior. It could be as close as that. We pray that you would have mercy upon us. And that you would rid us of this thing. And we do pray, Father, we thank you for an opportunity to share in this wonderful work that you're doing in the world. That we can care and relieve the suffering of others through giving and pooling our resources together. Like this family from Afghanistan. We're so thankful for that. And Lord, we thank you for all the opportunities that we have to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we do pray that, Lord, that you would keep us. It's not by our power that we are kept. It is by your power that we are kept. Keep us till the end. That we may say like Paul, I have fought a good fight. I I finished the race, and now is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Bless those who give today, Father, as they support your work in the world through this local body of believers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.